the book of James has been, uh, has been a good read. I think you'll agree. I know many people already uh, were in love with the book before we open it up here at church. Uh, it's a relentlessly practical letter. Uh, it's full of do's and don'ts and how's of how to live. Uh, it's, it's less about what we might uh, think of as the, you know, the famously or the, or the uh, stereotypically spiritual exercises and more about the kind of stuff that you do with your hands and your money and your mouth. It's a really practical letter. Now, there's, a, there's sort of a pattern among the letters of the New Testament, uh, even if you open up the other ones, especially the ones written by Paul. Uh, Paul wrote most of them. Um, and they begin uh, with sort of a, a lesson in doctrine and theology, uh, and they end with action. Uh, and so he will, Paul will open his letters with doctrine, hope, encouragements, things to sort of fuel our head, so to speak. Uh, and then at some point in the letter, he will write the word, therefore, as if to say, all right, now that you know and understand this stuff, therefore, this is how you must live. And, he'll, and then Paul will open up with a stream of do's and don'ts uh, and, uh, and instructions. Uh, James is different. Uh, he sort of doesn't really have that first bit. Uh, the stuff of the doctrine and theology, it's there, but it's mostly incidental as you read, and in, a, and in large part, portion, it's assumed. Um, and, and most of what he writes is like that second half, just that rapid-fire instructions. Uh, James is quite jarring in how he writes. He's pretty blunt, uh, but he's also, I think many of us find him really refreshing as well because he's just so to the point. What's interesting, though, is that both Paul and James finish their letters almost the same way, and that's by telling us to pray. Uh, and I think what's interesting in that is that both of them, in their really practical portions of the letters, now James is all practical and Paul gets practical at the end, uh, for both of them, prayer is practical. Uh, it's not just, you know, uh, something that we're assumed to do. It's not a merely spiritual thing, uh, but it's a real do of the Christian faith. Therefore, pray. Uh, so Paul ends like this, a bunch of his letters. In Ephesians chapter 6, the last chapter, he says, pray at all times in the Spirit. In his letter to the Philippians, he finishes by saying, uh, in everything by prayer, let your requests be made known to God. To the Colossians, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. To the Thessalonians, he says, pray without ceasing. Uh, and so Paul ends uh, a good number of his letters by saying, pray in all circumstances with thankfulness. And James, at the end of his letter, ends uh, very similarly, pray in all circumstances. So we're going to kind of chip away bit by bit today. Uh, keep your Bible open. Uh, we're sort of going to uh, sort of plug away almost verse by verse. Uh, but what we will see is that prayer is uh, the glue of faith and family. Uh, it's just kind of assumed that prayer will, be, uh, will play a key role uh, in your individual life of faith uh, to sort of hold you close to God. Uh, but it is also the glue of our Christian community as we pray for one another uh, and as we come together uh, corporately. And so the first thing uh, that he says, he sort of just pulls out a bunch of scenarios. Are you suffering? Well, therefore, pray. That's what he says uh, at the start of verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. James, James writes into a context 
of suffering. That's pretty clear as you read the book. Uh, They're a primarily poor congregation. They're probably persecuted. And so he says, are you suffering? Probably. Well, pray. I think it's assumed here that you're praying for some kind of outcome, like a, a relief from suffering, that your suffering will end and that God will deliver you by bringing relief or justice or peace. But there's also just a really human, relational element to this. Because when you're suffering, isn't part of the healing just in the act of sharing and being heard? So yes, he's telling us to pray for an outcome, but he's also just saying, just pray in your suffering. Process your grief in prayer. When you're doing it tough, do you ever get on the phone to someone? Maybe to family or friends that live miles and miles away. The very people who really can't do anything about the suffering that you're experiencing. You're not calling them because you expect them actually to fix what you're going through. But it's the connection that helps. Has anyone here heard of vague booking? Do you know what vague booking is on Facebook? It's posting vague and cryptic messages on Facebook. When someone just types into their status um, things like, oh, not again, or why me, or hospitals suck. All that stuff without context, so no one really knows what they're talking about. But often when people do these things, what they're doing is they're fishing for, for attention on the internet. Uh, And that can be irritating sometimes, but there's actually just something really normal and human about that. Because what these people are expressing is they want someone to call out to, not to fix their problem, but just to hear them, to just be heard and connected in your time of need. And so the Psalms uh, give us good fodder for this kind of thing. Uh, You don't have to go very far through the book of Psalms to find prayers that are reaching out for connection with God through suffering. Not even necessarily asking for deliverance, but just expressing pain. Psalm 5, give ears to my word, O Lord, consider my groaning. Just hear me, please, in my pain. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. So friends, if you're suffering, pray. Pray for relief, sure, but pray for connection with God. The next scenario James introduces us to is if you happen to be cheerful or have something to celebrate. We're still in the first verse. He says, is anyone cheerful? Well, let him sing praise. Now, he doesn't say the word pray, but he's speaking still about uh, expressing uh, uh, what you're going through to God in prayer. If anything, uh, this backs up what we've just considered, that prayer is as much about connection as anything because the cheerful person isn't asking for their joy to pass uh, or for circumstances to change necessarily. They are just called to just sing it out and be heard by God. Just like the suffering person should openly lament their pain, the cheerful person should offer praise to God. Uh, God is interested in your salvation, yes, That's the big picture. But he's actually invested in your whole life, the ups and downs. He weeps when you weep and he smiles when you smile. So we should share all the highs and lows with him. Just like a marriage is strengthened through time together and ups and downs, our relationship with God only gets better uh, as we stick close by him and share the ebbs and flows. 
And when we put both these things together, the sufferings and the cheerfulness, we get something like a whole life of prayer, don't we? Like Paul says, pray continuously, in all things pray. Which shows again that prayer is about so much more than just asking for stuff. It's about living in communion with God. It's a journey walked together with our God and Saviour. But of course, prayer does often expect an answer. I mean, that's really built into the word prayer. Prayer is a, is a request. We are told to pray for outcomes as much as for connection. And so James talks next about people who are sick. And he does address this, uh, this praying for outcomes. So what does he say uh, for sick people in verse 14? Well, he, he says there should be prayer. But actually, the first thing he says is to call the elders. I'll read out the verses. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now, there's a few things to piece together for the context of this passage. Uh, It's all in the passage, so I'm not pulling things out that you couldn't see yourself just by looking at it. But let's try and hold it all together while we tackle these verses. First of all, it appears that this is a serious sickness. It's, It's not just a sniffle, right? It's either sudden and serious uh, or it's something that's kept the person away from fellowship for a long, for a long period. Uh, they're likely bedridden, for example. And so we see these things, um, uh, which is why the, it says uh, to call the elders to come to them. Otherwise, they could just as easily go to the elders. This person's like really crook. Uh, verse 14, it says to pray over them so that they may be raised up. Now, all words that could be used in various contexts, but uh, in this case, seems like suggesting that the person is bedridden, confined to bed. Uh, The assumption also is here that this person has already been praying for themselves. It's not saying if you're sick, you know, outsource the prayer. Uh, Because if you're suffering, remember, pray. But with those assumptions, let's look at the first thing that James says. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. Can I simply repeat that? Friends, call your elders. The elders have responsibilities too, uh, to be on the front foot of pastoral care as much as possible and to come and to pray, and we'll talk about that. Uh, But those responsibilities are made so much clearer when you call us, when we're informed, when we know. And those responsibilities are so much muddier when we're not called and we don't know. Friends, call the elders. On Thursday afternoon, I was on the road back from Rocky um, and I got a text from Jack giving me the update about Amanda and the twins and I was able to not be with them in person because I was 200 k's away, but to pull over on the side of the road and pray on speakerphone with Jack and Amanda. It meant so much to me in that moment to be informed about what's going on uh, in the lives and struggles of people in our church. That's really important stuff for our community and so encouraging for me to see them sharing on like our church Facebook group and that as well about uh, what they're going for and asking for that connection from us. Uh, If you're away for a long time uh, from our church, uh, our church and leadership does have a responsibility, a duty to check in on you. But if over a lengthening period of time we hear nothing from you, our mandate to care for you does become fuzzier. It becomes less clear for us uh, where we stand in terms of your life. 
So please call. We want in on your struggles so, so we can share, with them, share them with you and pray for you. Verse 14 says, when the elders come, they should do something themselves. They should pray, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. What does it mean? Are you an elder? Pray for the sick. But what does it mean, this anointed with oil thing? It's a, it's a funny uh, sort of scenario for you and I to imagine, I suspect. Firstly, the, the oil, let me say, is not the essential element in this. Uh, it's not mainly about the oil. That might be the thing that sticks out as, oh, what do we do with that? But that's because to us it's unusual. The essential element is prayer in the name of the Lord. Um, even uh, that reference there, in the name of the Lord, in verse 14, those aren't magic words or some formula. You know, you can pray whatever you want and then just say at the end, in the name of the Lord. It's about your faith being directed to the Lord, to the one who saves. It says in the next verse that it is the Lord who will raise you up. And so therefore, to the Lord we pray. But about the oil, a couple of things. See, the use of oil... Uh, is very connected to the cultural context that James is talking about. I'm not saying it's not connected to our context as well, but it's very connected to James's context. Um, it was used frequently for religious reasons, even for health reasons, sort of therapeutic effects and aromas. Uh, and it wasn't just an obviously Jewish thing or even an early Christian thing, but just an all-world sort of, or all-known world cultural thing. So all I'm saying is that the use of oil is embedded very deeply in the, in the immediate context of the time, unlike, for example, the practice of prayer, which is not embedded in the context of that time, but something that sort of floats free and, uh, and just goes everywhere. Prayer is always relevant. Uh, but this use of oil does teach us something beautiful too about the nature of these prayers and what this prayer should be like. That prayer is an act of love and care. Like everything in James, uh, the use of oil is practical. The idea isn't that the elders stand over the person uh, dribbling or dousing oil from some great height, but probably kneeling by the bed and massaging it into the hands or maybe even the forehead of the sick person. And my sense is that this would not have felt like a particularly odd thing for the people that James is writing to. I reckon for them it would have still felt, you know, intimate, maybe a bit strange because, you know, it's strange uh, to be touchy-feely with people that, uh, that you're not used to uh, in that context. Uh, intimate in the way that washing someone's feet is intimate, but an act of love and sacrifice. But in our much less touchy-feely cult culture, I suspect something like holding a person's hand to pray or even resting your hand on their shoulder uh, might share some of the same message uh, that James is driving at with the use of oil. But friends, if you're ever sick and oil is what you want, oil you shall get, just ask. We need to um, make a couple of other comments, I think, on this passage uh, about sickness and sin and whether and how they're connected, uh, but also the effectiveness of prayer. So a comment on the link between sickness and sin. So I want to say in these verses, 14 and 15, uh, the sickness that James is referring to is clearly a physical sickness. Uh, it's a sickness that's felt in the body. 
But he does use language while he's talking about this sickness that can sometimes be used about spiritual ailments. So, you know, we, we even talk about, you know, the word sick, which means uh, physically sick. We can use in a spiritual sense as well. Uh, in, in the same way we can use the word death to mean, well, a body is dead or someone is dead spiritually. Uh, James says um, uh, that when the person is healed, he uses the word saved which can be used just about healing, but uh, normally we think of in a spiritual salvation sense. Uh, He says that uh, the person will be raised up when they're healed, which again probably means simply that they will climb out of bed, but can also mean this sort of spiritual raising up and and reviving. And and then he does introduce the subject of sin quite plainly in verse 15, uh, because he says, uh, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, the Lord will raise him up, And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And then in verse 16, he goes on to say, therefore, confess your sins. And so he's really uh, intertwining uh, this this language of sickness with sin. I want to do just a really brief survey of the Bible's teaching on the connection between sickness and sin. In one sense, it goes right back to uh, chapter 3 of your whole Bible, of Genesis. Uh, where uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, we have this beautiful, idyllic, perfect version of world of the world, creation as it was meant to be. And then in number 3, Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, sinned, uh, the world became cursed. Uh, and, and our connection with God, as close as it had been, was somewhat severed. And at that moment, all sorts of things crept in to uh, the world's existence, including uh, things like shame and broken relationships and even, uh, we believe, sickness. So in, in that big sort of sense, sickness is related to sin. It is a symptom uh, of a broken world uh, and, a, and a broken connection with God. Uh, sin may also result in sickness um, in a really tangible sense. So, you know, you might uh, commit a sin which, with the obvious direct consequence being that you are injured, for example. Uh, but you can also be injured doing good things as well, or neutral things. Uh, sickness can, uh, sin can also result in sickness uh, as a curse or a spiritual judgment. Uh, although the Bible uh, does suggest that when that's the case, it's normally made clear that that's the case. Um, so uh, if you're lying around wondering if your sickness is a case of uh, judgment or curse on you, um, then, it, then perhaps it's not, uh, because uh, I, I would expect it to be quite clear. Uh, Jesus, uh, when he heals a man uh, by the pool of Siloam, uh, he says at the end, having healed the man, he says, go away and sin no more. There's maybe an indication in that 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 man had, uh, was paralysed because of his sin. Uh, it may have been uh, spiritually connected in that way. But then later on, when Jesus heals a man who was born blind, his disciples say, uh, well, who sinned, Lord, this man or his, disi- or, or, or his parents? And Jesus said, no one sinned. This sickness was merely uh, to display the glory of God. The best link between sickness and sin is probably when Jesus healed uh, the paralysed man that got lowered down through the roof. First, Jesus says to the man, even while he's paralysed on the ground, your sins are forgiven. And then to prove his point, he says, get up and walk. So at the very least, 
Our experience of sickness in this life provides a metaphor for understanding God's healing and saving hand on us. At the very least, um, which, is, which would make sense of why James uh, talks about sickness and sin as being this intertwined sort of thing, to use the same language uh, for, a, for a spiritual salvation as you would for a physical healing. Uh, question is, should we expect to see healings today? And what's wrong if we don't? I think we should expect to see healings today. We certainly shouldn't be surprised to see God work in miraculous ways. Do we need to see healings today? Probably not. Uh, We have the revelation of God's power here in Scripture. We are encouraged to walk by faith, not by sight. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says that his disciples, uh, sorry, that, uh, that we would be rewarded for believing even when we haven't seen that in fact the people who believe without having seen are are more blessed than the people who believe having seen. This doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for healing. We also need to comment on the effectiveness of prayer because James raises the question, doesn't he? He uh, He says the prayer of faith will save him and he will be raised up. What does it mean when people aren't healed then is the question that jumps into my sceptical mind and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Well, a few things to say on that point. Uh, I don't think we should read too much into the fact that James doesn't discuss the alternative. Okay? He says that the prayer of faith with he- will heal. He doesn't really give an alternative. He doesn't say, well, how do we understand um, the, the scenario where the person isn't healed? And so we aren't really given by James the categories for understanding that. And so maybe it's just not for us at this time to delve too far into that. We should be quite content in one sense to take this as a command or an instruction more so than a, than a guarantee, even though, of course, we should pray with faith. Uh, I think also James and other early church writers, they still expected people to die, Okay. Uh, They still expected that people would die eventually of something, meaning that not everyone would be healed all the time. But there are some things in uh, in the next verses that also uh, address this question of the the efficacy of prayer or the effectiveness of prayer. So have a look at verse 16. He says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. He almost suggests that if you're not being healed, there may be a lack of confession. There is a chance that unanswered prayer is the result of some sort of spiritual blockage. And that spiritual blockage, uh, according to James, is unconfessed sin. Uh, We also see that a a hint of that a little bit further back, uh, was it in chapter 4, verse 2, James says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. I assume he's talking about prayer. And then in verse 3, he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly uh, with the wrong motives. And so there is such thing as, I guess, these spiritual blockages that that mean that God uh, does not 
uh, or will not answer certain prayers. Now, that's not to say that God won't sometimes answer the prayer of a person who is very deep in sin. Uh, God is absolutely free to do whatever He pleases. And He is full of mercy and He actually often does override these sensibilities to uh, answer the prayers of people who are desperately in need and who sincerely cry out to Him. But we also shouldn't expect God to jump just because we say He should at that time, even while we willfully turn away from Him at every other corner. We need to be living a life of faith, which includes repentance and confession of sin. He also says in the second half of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. So that's another comment on the effectiveness of prayer, uh, that it's the prayer of a righteous person that has great power. And again, that's not to say God can't answer anyone's prayers, because he often does. But the point that James is making is the prayer of a righteous person has great power. And as I read the Bible, I I see at least two types of righteousness talked about. There is a sort of a threshold version of righteousness, where the person leads a life that is obviously and deeply devoted to God and His ways, even if that person may not be perfect. Now, that person, uh, you're not saved just by reaching a threshold of good works, uh, but, it, but it's right to say, you know, that someone is a godly person, even if they're not absolutely like God in every way. It's right to say that someone is righteous if they lead a basically good life and a life of faith. But there is another type of righteousness that we learn about in the Bible, which is essentially a declaration of a person's innocence, of their status before God, which isn't a righteousness that you earn or create in and of yourself, but a righteousness that is given to you by God by virtue of your faith in Jesus. To be righteous is to be considered guiltless before God because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus' sins. So who is the righteous person whose prayer has great power? Well, it's at least the second kind of person, the person who has been declared righteous by God by virtue of their faith in Christ. But I think he is also talking about the person who, whose life demonstrates a certain threshold of righteousness, of actual good works, of a faith that is lived out. I'm sure that's the person of righteousness whose prayer has great power. Uh, which is why, when we're in sin, we ought to pray and confess our sins. Are you a sinner? Then pray. When James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, uh, it assumes that we do this actually in conversation, face to face, that we share our deepest dark things with one another and that we pray maybe holding hands or face to face in each other's presence. Not simply that we pray for people out there in our own quiet, personal, private prayer time, but that we also at times pause with our friends or your wife or your children and to pray with them. And we should also confess like this. Sometimes confess sins committed against a person and come clean with them and say, I'm sorry. Sometimes it's saying sorry because you were found out. Sometimes it's coming clean about something even when you're not found out. But to confess your sin and find healing. Sometimes it's confessing other dark and secret things that just need to see the light. Uh, And that can be helped by sharing them with one another. 
any story of spiritual revival I've read has, has had stories of this kind, where people are moved to bear their souls and come clean, uh, and that in turn releases all kinds of love and spiritual power into the community. But I should also say that uh, as a really low bar for this kind of thing, just attend church. Because even in attending church on a Sunday, we are confessing our sins in one another's presence. We're confessing to our neighbours that, uh, that uh, we are people of guilt and weakness who need to return regularly uh, to the Lord. But we also, in our prayers and in each other's hearing, we say things like, forgive us our sins. And we are admitting publicly that we are people who are not all right, who need salvation from God. Are you human? Then pray. That's James's point uh, when he brings up Elijah. And I'm not going to dig into Elijah's whole backstory here. But in verse 17, James says this. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it didn't. And then he prayed again. And the heavens opened. And the earth bore its fruit. Now, Elijah is obviously an example of the righteous person from verse 16, right? The, the righteous person whose prayers are effective. But actually what James works hard to highlight in verse 17 is just how ordinary Elijah is. Okay, you read the stories in, uh, in the book of Kings about Elijah's great feats and you think that man was extraordinary. He was a mighty prophet of the Lord. But James says he was just a man. Verse 17, a man with a nature like ours, nothing more. What was particularly special about his prayer is, you know, perhaps that he was a righteous man, but also that it was fervent, James says. Well, actually, James doesn't say fervent at all. Some of your Bibles might say earnest, and James doesn't say that either. What James literally says uh, in, uh, in the Greek that he wrote in is he says, in prayer, he prayed. He just repeats himself, which we understand is, uh, uh, is to, uh, to amplify what he means by prayer. So he, like, he really, really prayed. He prayed and prayed and prayed. Friends, there should be an intensity to our prayers. And for me, this is, um, this is the point uh, that uh, moment of confession uh, probably uh, speaks to me the most. Uh, and I suspect uh, in our sort of brand of Christianity in the Presbyterian Church, and I know you're not all Presbyterians, but you attend a Presbyterian Church, um, it's this, uh, this fervent, um, intense sort of prayer that I think can often go undone. You know, Jesus does tell us not to pray like babbling pagans who think they'll be heard for their many words. Phew, what a relief. I don't need to pray and pray and pray. I can just say you know, a simple formula and I will be heard. And that's true. That is the prayer of faith, to pray simply to believe in a single sentence that God has heard your prayers. And Jesus modelled just that by giving just a single line in the Lord's Prayer uh, to a bunch of really important requests. But Jesus did also model in his own life a different kind of prayer on top of that. He frequently withdrew to pray in private. 
He even at times prayed the same thing over and over again until his own fears were were resolved or his own faith was strengthened. He prayed until he sweated like with blood. I'm sure I'm not the only one who likes the first kind of prayer, that simple one. You say it once, it's done, God has heard. But is it really praying if that's all we do? I think of, for example, the scenario in Myanmar uh, going on uh, in the world at the moment, and and I don't know a lot about it, uh, and I suspect uh, there's people here who know more than I do. It is an act of faith for us as a church family to mention people, the people of Myanmar, in our prayers, as we did today, and to leave it at that. But it's a situation that's so deep and complex and painful and far-reaching that it obviously calls for something more than just a a one-off mention in a Sunday service. And there are people out there praying and praying and praying fervently for justice in that scenario. And I also know there's too many scenarios in this world for us to pray fervently about each and every one of them. But friends, we do need to be a people... Uh, who pray more and more and with more intensity, I think. That's, my, um, that's what I feel convic- convicted of. That's a di- diagnosis on me uh, and I suspect I'm not alone in that. I've got a small number of ideas about how we can uh, go about working on this as a faith community. Um, but, uh, but I invite your feedback as well, especially if you're someone who is more gifted in prayer than I uh, friends, it's pretty obvious in the book of James that, uh, that by the end, prayer is this glue uh, that connects our faith and our community. Uh, I'm barely going to mention the last couple of verses. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We are to live in community, a a deep, rich, thick community that's bold enough uh, to say things that need to be said and to chase people that need to be chased uh, and to affect change that needs to be affected. Uh, In all of this, uh, it's not only our words and the things we do, and of course it's those things, uh, but it is prayer that is the glue of our faith that keeps us close with God uh, and prayer together that keeps us close as a family to each other, to God. Let's pray. Father, I can't be the only one who um, reads these instructions on prayer and finds myself sorely lacking. Uh, We are each sorry for uh, the way our lack of faith expresses itself, uh, but especially, especially in this realm of prayer. We pray that you'll help us uh, to pray fervently, to really pray, to pray and pray and pray, to pray with faith, to pray with each other, to pray when we're suffering and to pray when we're joyful and to sing your praise. Oh, we pray that uh, you will help us to stay glued to you, 
uh, so that we run every thought by you uh, and share every high and low with you. Help us also to be glued to one another in prayer uh, as we uh, stand shoulder to shoulder uh, in this fight of faith. We pray that where we lack, uh, your spirit will transform uh, so that this community can look more like uh, the community of prayer that we should. Amen.